Talk Shoes. Recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday october 28th 2011 this week episode 225 comes to you from studio c in beautiful mckees rocks pennsylvania my name is radio joe hughes back in the studio with us again this week is the z-man cliff slot name here joe it's it's fall i think officially I, fall i think officially is right it uh, had to scrape the ice this morning also assisting us uh, is Valerie Bender. Hi, good Hello, to be here Val. this morning. Good to have you back. And at the controls is our engineer, Austin Stone Cold. Go back. Okay, today's segments include the IAQ Radio trivia question and interview with Mr. Will Lamb, a contents cleaning specialist and founder of AM Restore in the Baltimore, Maryland area. We'll have our halftime, and then we'll do our roundup with our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our marquee sponsors. Our newest marquee sponsor is Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more at www.netclaimsnow.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right. You can always download the show from our iaqradio.com website. You can stream it right from the homepage or follow the link that says go to the show and download a version. You can also get the show from iTunes. To join us live, just follow the link on your show invitation that says go to the show live. Don't forget, we have ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC renewal credits. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. I'll get you out the quizzes. We'll take care of you. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Joe. 
Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IA. Let's start again. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ Radio trivia question every week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Email it to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. To John Lapotier, MicroShield Environmental Services, Winter Springs, Florida, for being the first listener to identify Ed York as the founder of the IICUC, which was the predecessor to the Clean Trust. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, October 28, 2011, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Now for this week's trivia question. Name the Scottish-born furniture designer and maker who emigrated to America and is acknowledged as one of the leading 19th century makers who is most well-known for incorporating the lyre or harp motif into his furnishings. Sounds like a good one, Cliff. All right, this week, Mr. Will Lamb joins us. Since 2007, AM Restore has grown in its marketplace to be a dominant force in the contents, art, and equipment restoration category and has recently garnered some national attention through systems, procedures, and customer-centric focus to serving people in their time of need. They have doubled growth every year since their founding. Being a firm believer in the value of education, Will has pursued several certifications in the restorative arts. He has also had extensive training in other aspects of restoration, safety, and business. As he has attended various classes, industry meetings, and seminars, he understood a niche in the restoration industry that could that he could assist in filling. He saw this niche and actually he's doing a great job filling it. He's combined the desire for helping people with his desire to aid other restoration companies and the insurance industry, and he created his current company, a contents, art, and equipment restoration specialist that serves them all. Out of this need and with the help of countless others, AM Restore has create was created to aid where it was needed most in the contents restoration niche. AM Restore's goal is to help the community, restoration companies, insurance professionals, and general industry or institutional organizations when they need us the most. We've got some music for well, actually, oh, wait, opening, opening comments. Comments. Yeah. That's all your house is, a place to keep your stuff. If you didn't have so much stuff, you wouldn't need a house. A house is just a pile of stuff with a cover on it. <laughs> and when you leave your house, you gotta lock it up. Wouldn't want somebody to come by and take some of your stuff. They always take the good stuff. <laughs> they never bother with that crap you're saving. Okay, Will, do we have you on the line? Yes, sir. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. morning. Thanks for joining us. Figured we'd start you out with a little George Carlin, since you deal so much with stuff. Uh, That's right. And, but you deal with some interesting stuff. What inspired you to actually get started and to create the business model you have right now where you just deal with contents? Yeah, I hope I don't make him blush, but uh, actually Cliff helped me a great deal. Uh, um, 
<laughs> so thank you again. Interesting. Sir. Interesting. Okay. It, uh, well, we um, I had taken some training classes many years back at Cliff's facility, and uh, you know we just created a relationship there and a friendship. And one night uh, when I was researching some different market segments and functions of the restoration industry, I was thinking about what I could do. And I just remember a conversation with him, and uh, he simply asked me a question, what about contents? And I had never really thought too deeply about that because I was looking at the whole picture. And, uh, well, that sent the research function in me in motion. And as I started to peel back the layers and talk to more people, it seemed like a perfect fit for the skill set I had acquired through the years and uh, as a perfect marriage of skill and passion to help people. Okay. You know, I in the show invitation, we did describe a little more your background, but in this particular introduction, we focused more on the current company. Maybe we should refresh listeners about the fact that you do come from a, a family, I guess it was, that was in the restoration and cleaning business. Can you tell us a little bit about when you got started and how long you've been in this business? Yeah, you know, I mean, essentially my whole life. My father was a general contractor, and he was one of the best, um, you know, before he was restoring before, not really fire restoration, but historical restoration as construction company. Um, when I was a young kid, I would help him out. And then uh, as I was going through college, of course, I had to work my way through, and I worked for Auto Body Restoration Shop. Um, so on weekends and holidays and summers, I would do auto body restoration. Hmm. And then I actually got a business degree, and after that I started a small IT company, you know, a little bit out of, the, uh, out of my niche. And uh, my family's business up here in Maryland, they owned a restoration and carpet cleaning franchise and it actually happened that they had a fire in their own facility um, the neighbor was smoking uh, while he was filling oxygen tanks not a real wise thing to do <laughs> yeah and it uh, started blowing those guys out the top of the building and and so I actually came up to help them put their business back together and I essentially became their I don't want to say their public adjuster but I helped them with their insurance claim because it seemed the insurance company is trying to take them down a different route. And uh, from then on, I had my first daughter, and they asked me if I could come up and help them run their franchise for six years. I, after that, I moved up to Maryland for six years. I had, uh, was the general manager of their cleaning and restoration franchise. And, um, you know, got just about every IIC or C certification there is, and as well as I had trained in conservative arts and art restoration and took OSHA classes at Georgia Tech, um, and have several certifications in safety and training and, and safety as well. So it just it snowballed. Um, I'd always loved to tinker. I always loved to invent. I always loved to watch something, uh, you know, try to reclaim something old and, and restore it again. So it's, it's just a natural marriage. Yeah, I know Cliff wants to ask a question. i got to get a quick one in here. Um, I'm curious, you know, there's all these shows now on about the guys that go out and bid on the storage units or the, the, the guys that go out and, you know, um, they go looking for old stuff. I can't remember those two guys' names. Uh, well, there's, I guess, the auction hunters. The, the, there's, yeah, uh, the, the antique yeah. guy. The guys American, go, Pickers. American Pickers, that's right. it. I, I, you've got to watch that kind of stuff, Will. Do you catch any of that at all? Or? Absolutely. We were actually approached. It's been about nine months ago. We were actually approached by a major network to do our own reality show as well. 
Interesting. Yeah. yeah, at the time, I actually uh, regretfully turned it down because I wanted to focus on my business and not on really being an entertainer. <laughs> well, the other one I have to mention is uh, PBS has a great show on every, I think it's Monday night, the Antique Road Show. Do you catch that ever? Absolutely, and we run into that sort of thing all the time. Fascinating. Well, we'll talk more about that. Let's let Cliff get a question. Sure, well, while we're on the subject, Will, can you describe some of the basic processes that your company uses to clean and restore contents and other personal property? Sure. I mean, we use some of the basic techniques that have been around forever um, and a nice mix of technology. On the technology side, we use your basic ultrasonic machine processing, the stage batch processing. Um, electronics cleaning equipment. We have the deionized cleaning systems as well as some other proprietary systems that we're, uh, we're developing, what well, we've developed and are in the middle of developing. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's a good mix between the old school restorative arts and then a lot of the new technology that's coming out. Um, you know, anything that's out there, whether it be the Asporta equipment, which we have in facility, um, the ultrasonic machines, the electronic machines, the cleaning machines, as well as the, uh, the freeze dryers. You know, any, any kind of technology really piques my interest. But then there is, there's some things that technology just won't cure, and that's where you need a really good technicians that are trained in restorative arts that can really get down and, and dirty in some of these things. And some things, you know, technology just won't handle. you got to use the old-school techniques. You you mentioned uh, quite a few pieces of equipment, and maybe we'll have time to go into a little more detail. I know as far as the, you mentioned the Asporta wash system, for listeners that aren't familiar with that one, we did a show with Howard Shures, S-U-R-E-S, way back, probably in the first 50 shows we did. You can listen to a little bit more about that wash system. We haven't done anything on, on ultrasonics to the best of uh, my recollection, Will. Can you... Describe a little bit about the value of ultrasonic equipment to you doing restorative, uh, you know, rest, restoring contents. Sure. For us, it speeds up our general contents process by about 50%. Um, you know, there's some things that you still have to hand clean, but a lot of your harder items, um, from your figurines to your dishes to, you know, just uh, general hard items that are able to go through a wet wash cycle, as well as, um, you know, we recently did a, industrial facility where we hooked up ultrasonic machines and staged them in a tractor trailer so that we can clean these items on site. They came in really handy. Um, and can you describe a little more what that ultrasonic process is, just real quick for the listeners? Sure. What happens is it creates the creates cavitation through pushing ultrasonic waves through the water. And the cavitation, I like to tell people, it's like the tiny scrubbing bubbles on the commercial. Um, it's essentially making these bubbles explode off the side of an item so that it creates that, um, that agitation for cleaning. You know, your basic cleaning, your chat chart is your chemical, your heat, your agitation, and your time. With an ultrasonic machine, your chemical is what you, the solution that you have in there. The heat, of course, is the proper heat setting that's adequate for that content. And then the uh, agitation is exactly what that cavitation is creating. So what it's doing is, actually doing that mechanical function instead of you scrubbing it all day um, it's using the mechanical function of that cavitation to create that agitation and it greatly reduces down your time you know when when you used to do a box of contents took you maybe 15 20 30 minutes that same box of contents can be pushed through the system 
as long as they can safety be clean in two to five minutes. So it'll greatly reduce your cycle time. Is it safe to say that you use that piece of equipment pretty regularly during your contents cleaning and restoration? Absolutely, and they're very flexible. You, they can be used in facility, outside, in the field. You know, it's just a very flexible piece of equipment. I love to have it in my arsenal. Okay, Cliff. Cool. We imagine that some of the items that you process in your facility would be highly contaminated with odors, loose particulate, mold spores, fungal fragments, bacteria. How do you protect? Uh, I guess both your workers and your facility from cross contamination. Right. Very carefully. <laughs> um, I'm a I'm a strict believer in safety. First, you know, our facility is highly, highly um, regarded in the area as one of the safest and cleanest facilities. Of course, I mean, literally, you could eat off our floors on a daily basis. Um, we use our industry standard practices for containment of items. You know, during packaging, especially when there's a known or perceived contaminant um, we're going to use the in you know the s500 and the s520 standard practices for packaging and transporting um, once in our facility any contaminated items are actually segre- segregated in the specific holding areas with environmental controls um, any cleaning that is uh, any cleaning is done in one of our containment rooms with again engineering controls downdraft tables etc um, we have strict cleaning and decontamination schedules, just in case the <laughs> just in case a rogue spore escapes us. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I can I can vouch for your facility. Well, I've been there quite a few times, and it's definitely uh, I, I wouldn't mind eating off the floors there. Yeah, it's pretty uh, impressive. It's, it is really is. I'm sorry, did I cut you off there? Did you have something else to add? Oh, not at all. You know, and then and on top of that, we go through a uh, a, a cleaning and decontamination schedule after each job is processed to make sure there's no cross-contamination. We actually have permanently mounted uh, AFDs in work areas um, where even if we're not processing processing contaminated items, we're creating that engineering uh, workflow for general air quality, et cetera, during the basic cleaning procedures. I just, with our people, you know, we put a lot of time. I love our employees. I love our people. I love our customers. And we can never be too safe when it comes to their health, health and safety. Okay, um, let me move on to another item, and that would be pre-cleaning or pre-processing the items, but, but on-site. So, mm-hmm. as I understand it, you don't do disaster restoration. You don't have any, I mean, you have, but you don't have any desire to take, you know, the work away from the people in your area. Your whole idea is to just deal with the contents. Can you talk a little bit about that process? How do you, you know, how do you work things out with the other people that you work for, uh, do you do any pre-cleaning or pre-processing of the items at the site? Yeah, we work very closely with all the restoration companies in our industry. It's, it's good in our area. It's good that I have the background so I understand what they need to do to be able to tailor our processes to work closely with them. Um, when it comes to the pre-cleaning items on site, it really depends on the site conditions and the structure and the likelihood of further degradation. You know, normally we'll do a basic pre-cleaning during the packing procedure so that we can remove the gross contamination and the neutralize, especially in the case of a fire, the acid residue, um, in the case of a water event, possible microbial contamination to prevent any further damage. 
um, and it gives us one more layer of safety before we bring it back to the facility. Um, our goal really is to stabilize all the items until the proper techniques can be applied um, in our controlled environment for a highly successful restoration result. Now, I, I was doing a little background here. I'm not sure if you mentioned this, but how do you handle going to the site? I mean, are you in, like, an unmarked truck? Do you temporarily put the, the company you're working for sign on your trucks? Uh, how do you handle that type of, I guess that would be a public relations kind of thing, and also the people you do the work for would be obviously a little bit concerned about, well, are we using another company for this part of the job, or, you know, is everything in-house? You know, in the beginning, we um, we went in unmarked, um, and, you know, at first we would try to have a very low-key presence for the contractors that we work with. Um, over the last several years, the contractors actually, they want people to know that we're on the job. Um, so we have, right now we have half of our trucks wrapped and half of our trucks plain white because there are circumstances, especially if we go into an institution or um, commercial facility where they don't want big signs all over the trucks that say, hey, we've had a disaster here, you know, everybody come look. So they'll request that we come in on marked vehicles. Um, as for the contractors, we actually, uh, they're requesting that we have our presence known because we've had, we have such a good reputation for quality and customer service that they want people to know that we're on the job. Um, so it's really, it's really become a non-issue with that because people want, people want our name to be associated with them now, and that's a good feeling. That's interesting to me. I'm glad I asked because, you know, we haven't talked in probably a year now, and I haven't been to your facility in over a year, and I, I recall that early on you were uh, that was one of your concerns. It's, I, I think it's wonderful that people now want to see your name on the trucks, et cetera. That's great, great to hear. Cliff? Yeah, let's talk a little bit about um, how you get someone's personal property to your facility. You know, you know, you may have to handle something, you know, such as antique furniture, something that's large, something that's heavy. Do you utilize subcontract uh, services of a mover to do that, or do you do it with your own crews, your own trucks, and your own equipment, or both? Or you know, we do. It's it's a little bit of all of the above. Mostly, we have a fleet of our own moving vehicles. Um, so that we, because we have the moving and inventory specialists on staff, um, that way during the, of course, during the inventory procedures, we can keep the quality up. Um, we also control the quality of the packout process to gain efficiencies through the restoration cycle. Um, that makes happy customers and clients. Um, now, one thing that we will do, I will use subcontractors if we're on an industrial facility. Of course, if we need riggers or somebody to help us um, detach and relocate large equipment for restoration, we certainly will call in their expertise because that's something we wouldn't keep on staff. Um, but as it pertains to our normal residential, small to medium-sized commercial, um, we'll use our own staff to take care of that. It's just it's turned out a much better quality product um, than previously when I would use subcontractors and it would cloud the issue a little bit as well as I couldn't quite control their product because they haven't gone through our stringent training procedures. 
You know, Will, I, I always like to make sure that during the show here that we also give people tips, you know, especially those in, in the disaster restoration world. Obviously, we, you know, we love your service and we've talked highly about it, but obviously not everybody's going to be able to take advantage of it. They're not in Baltimore uh, or in that area. Can you give a tip or two about things you've learned over the years with respect to that portion of the project, actually moving those contents out of the facility that you're doing the work for and getting them to your facility. What, what should people watch for? What are the most common mistakes? Any kind of tip you can give our listeners? I mean, really it stems from the beginning of setting up the job, you know, communicating the, the expectation, you know, communicating what's really going to happen to the customer and set their expectations properly. You know, you definitely want to under-promise and over-deliver. Um, and then attached onto that is the inventory procedures. You know, we can never stress too much um, about the inventory procedures because you generally, you know, moving companies, people transporting things, yes, there's ways to detach and transport but those are pretty pretty commonplace you know and good companies a lot of good companies follow the same standard procedures how to move items out without causing additional damage um, but the biggest thing is where did those items come from what kind of pre-existing damage was on there where was the damage um, and then in your process making sure that all of that is properly inventoried and then it creates an easier pack back process so that you can actually get that back in the exact place it went without grabbing the customer or grabbing the client and trying to, you know, have them direct where it goes, where, you know, it just creates a really seamless process when you can put things back exactly where they go with, without any or all input from the client. And that really just, that lets them know that they're dealing with a truly professional company. So I think the biggest thing is, a, making sure that you're trained on proper moving procedures, how to pack a truck properly so that your load doesn't shift. B, um, and probably the most important, is really the inventory process in our industry. You know, being able to track those things through your process and track where they go, what it is, and how to find it if they need it fast. Um, and that's the biggest tip, and that's really what, through the years that we've perfected in a paper process and now in our, uh, in our software process. I know Cliff has a question. I want to just follow up real quick. I know Dr. Wow will appreciate this. We we do a lot with sampling and sending samples off after we do some type of IAQ investigation. And with each sample goes a chain of custody. And it sounds to me like your inventory is very similar to a sampling chain of custody, only a lot more complicated because you've got a lot more materials there. But uh, would that does that sound fair to say? Oh, absolutely. We modeled our chain of custody procedures around the IAQ industry's chain of custody procedures. Great. Okay. Um, and, and our paper process is neat, but what's even neater is the, the current, um, the new digital process that we've created really has a solid, solid chain of custody that can be tracked. It's just, it's a wicked thing to see when you can follow something all the way through the process and know where it is at any given moment, who's touched it, where it's been, and where it currently is. Do you use uh, photography in conjunction with the inventory or video videography? Absolutely. Um, you know, usually we'll use a video in the beginning just to document the lost site itself. Um, and then with the inventory, and that's something I forgot to add earlier, I apologize. With the inventory, 
there's a picture attached to every inventory item um, that we have going through our process. A, to be able to show what it is, um, B, to be able to show any pre-existing damage, and then C, the ability to show, you know, what condition that item was in before so that when you can give a before and after picture, it's a powerful presentation at the end of the project. Are, are you limited to just one photo per item or could you have, you know, photographs of the top, the, you know, like multiple photographs if there was something that you were looking to point out? Oh, absolutely. We, the, the, the um, paper version, we, the manual version we use, we use the general, it gets us a, a pretty industry-wide like a DPI, digital photo inventory procedure, uh, where you can use the camera and you're photographing the tag, et cetera, et cetera, and you have the, the corresponding photos with that. Um, with our digital process, though, we actually have handhelds um, that uh, actually can take as many pictures and hold it into that item and, and link it to that item as, as needed. Cool. Sounds like a, is that like a barcode type strategy? Yeah, that's, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. Great. That's interesting. Well, hey, Valerie Bender's here. She's our newest uh, addition to the IAQ radio team. She's got a question. Yeah, um, I was just wondering, what are the basic chem chemicals that you use? <laughs> well, I'm smoking microban, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it really is. We have a lot of different ones in our, our arsenal. Um, we have unsmoking microban products as well as some general ZEP products. Um, but we also have, through the years, we've created some proprietary blends um, that we've formulated through some research and testing for our different departments. And they're very successful um, for your not-so-basic restoration tasks. And how those really came about was through other ancillary um, restoration industries, like your art restoration, your uh, photography restoration. There's different industries that you can find these different processes and integrate them into your own with a little bit of searching. And how do we, how do you learn more about the art restoration world? Well, I'm just curious. I've, I've always found that fascinating. You know, you'll watch the home road show and they tell you, well, if you go and get this uh, restored by a professional, it'll be worth a little bit more. What, what do they mean by getting it restored by a professional? What, what, what is that process? If you, if you can help us a little bit with understanding sure. that. And that's and that's an intensive training. There's there's several um, universities on the East Coast that I know of that actually offer conservation um, level classes, conservation majors, I guess, um, as well as a lot of our techs have actually been sent out to Italy um, to train in uh, in the restorative arts there. They have a really good uh, good program in Florence that trains in the restorative arts. Um, and then also, you know, a lot of your stores, they have to be familiar with the AIC, which is the, uh, actually forget what the acronym stands for, excuse me, but um, uh, American Institute of Conser Conservation, I believe, but the acronym could stand for something different, so I might be mistaken. Um, but a lot of them follow the AIC guidelines for conservation as well. So that's another industry that, that's a very in-depth and, um, and and focus process and and i recommend anybody if if they want to get into art restoration or something like that it's not for a uh, an amateur to try to attempt these things because we've seen and we fix a lot of damage um, from people who do try to restore their own items um, and call it a conservation level when it's really just a you know a basic restorative cleaning rather than a true conservation level 
work with me for a moment. Well, what what is a basic restorative cleaning? How do you clean, uh, for instance, a painting? And I don't want to go into great detail, but I'm just curious. I've never, you know, never really researched that very much. Do you wet wipe it? Obviously, that sounds like a problem. Do you vac it off? Do you dust it, or is there some combination, or is there something I'm missing altogether? Yeah, there's a com for restorative cleaning. Uh, you know, you can use your CRS or your, you know, some people call them chem, chem sponges or so. The CRS sponges, HEPA vacuuming, um, you know, horsehair brush wiping, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. You know, that's your basic just restorative cleaning for a general item. Now, when it gets into the conservation level, um, that's when it gets into some very detailed chemistry. Because um, you could be removing a varnish level in order to get to the, the substrate below. You're dealing with different um, you're dealing with different materials, and it really gets into some pretty high level and neat and intensive chemistry. And there's some specialized equipment that you have to use in order to get the proper results. Gotcha. Gotcha. I mean, it depends, Joe, whether it's an oil painting or a watercolor. I yeah. mean, you know, exactly. And, you know, there's, there's a lot to it. And you've and, got to know the difference before you even consider touching one of those, I would imagine. I mean, you know, I, exactly. guess you, I guess you have to have some magnification, too, when you're working on it as well. Yeah, and in our lab, you know, we have the basic headsets, and then we also have, you know, magnification lenses and, um, you know, the whole, you know, wet wash areas, it's, it really is, when you get into the art side of it, it's a different monster than what our traditional restoration industry is used to. Okay. Uh, but well, it's, that, it's, the, it's the fun stuff. That helps you me have picture to have the it right better. people who know what they're doing. Yeah, that, that really helps me picture it better, and that's what we like to do on, even though we're on the radio, we like to paint the picture that's here. True. All right. Well, we're going to halftime. We'll be right back. Thanks for the first half, and uh, we're going to mute you for just a moment, but we'll be right back. Sounds good, my friend. Our association sponsors are the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental and consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. 
And, of course, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfactswithanx.com and cmmonline.com. Please marquee sponsor net claims now net claims now is the insurance billing for the restoration industry company for fire water mold and reconstruction billing learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com okay please be sure thank them all yeah let's thank thank our our sponsors for their support of iq radio when you inquire about their products and services absolutely i want to shout out to the john don folks in langhorn i'll be up to i'll be over to see you in two weeks we're we're packing them in in langhorn you better get your registrations in today or you won't won't make that one anyway uh let's get back with will lamb here for the second half of the show will do we have you back Yes, sir. Well, I might have screwed it up. The last time I talked to you, I wasn't sure if it was AM Restore or AM Restore. Straighten me out. Uh, a little bit of both. Whatever oh. you want. Okay, good. Well, good. It's AM if you're working in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's it's funny, too, because uh, I feel like I should change the name, but it, it actually makes people ask questions because they ask where it came from, and it always happens. They put an E after the M. To try to make it a mare restore. I got you. And where did it come from? Now that you've you've breached the subject, where did it come from? You know, uh, talking with some of my friends, we're you know I wanted to try to get the emotional response. A.M. Restore. A.M. New Dawn. You know, a new day. Um, my father's construction company was Arla. Him and his two partners had taken the two letters of their the first two letters of their last name and combined them. And, uh, you know, being lamb and am, you know, it just, uh, I, I honestly, it just it came to me and the A, heck, it puts it in the top of the phone book, too. <laughs> I've been there, Will. That's great. I'm glad we asked. All right, Val, I know you have one. Yeah, well, I was wondering, do you ever say no to a job? Uh, absolutely. Um, we say no often. Sometimes no, no definitely has to be in your vocabulary. And uh, I know my dad said it, and it's a term that goes around. Sometimes the best job you never do is the one that you don't do, um, if I said that right. Um, you know, a lot of times you have to weigh cost versus reward. And if your instinct is telling you something is wrong, 99% of your instincts are correct. Um, you know, there's, and I hate to say it, but there's contractors that sometimes you just, uh, they might not work the, on the most, they not work might not, might not work on the most ethical level, and a lot of times we will say no to working with those contractors. In our area, there's very few of them, so we don't have to worry about it. Um, in our area, we have great contractors to work with. Um, a lot of them are very knowledgeable and professional about what they're doing, and so it's easy to say yes to them on a project until you get into it and see you know, what exactly is, is being asked to restore. You know, if you're trying to restore a, a you know, a, a 1999 19-inch Zenith CRT television, it's probably going to be something you say no to because it's not cost-effective. Um, so you need to be able to weigh those, the cost-effective um, restoration portion of it against, you know, just trying to make a buck. Absolutely. Now, let's get into some a little detail about some of your projects. Can you tell us a little bit about some of your one or maybe a few of your most technically challenging projects? You know, we're, we're called in, we're called in 
technically challenging claims all the time um, because that's one of our specialties. Uh, probably a better question would be which of our projects aren't challenged. <laughs> um, mostly I can say art restoration um, and large equipment is always technically challenging, especially when you're dealing in a commercial environment on the large equipment side. Um, because you know you're trying to get a business back up and running in the least amount of time possible. Um, we've dealt with multi-million dollar companies, billion dollar conglomerates, as well as very successful local organizations, and we can really reduce that cycle time to get them back up and running, A, to reduce business interruption, but B, to get them back up and running. You know, we, uh, we recently did a, um, a high-end precision machine shop where we had brought the ultrasonic trailers on site and we were able to restore the, actually a lot of their working product um, to get their shipments back out, as well as their tooling and smaller items um, kind of off on site but out of the main uh, loss environment while we had equipment technicians working on the CNC machines, the lathes, et cetera, um, on site. So it's pretty much a, a dual part of the project. And we were able to get that done in, uh, in under six weeks after actually five and a half weeks where normally you would see something like that. You know, I, I, we've seen them take three to six months plus, and uh, every minute they're down, they're losing a customer. Uh, so I take that very seriously, especially since what happened to my family's business, seeing what they went through in order to get back up and running. Those are the ones that hit close to home, and I take very personally. Um, and working with the restoration contractors in our area, you know, we have great relationships with them, and we're really able to create a synergy to help get that project moved along a lot faster. And, uh, you know, any advice that I can give them on what I see in the process that can help speed that up, they're very happy to accept that a lot of times we can really, we can really move these things through um, and make it happen a lot faster than if we were working on our own. Was that a fire project, Will? It was a fire project. It was actually aluminum dust um, that caught fire and is extremely acidic. Um, and within, you know, within two hours of the loss, everything was flash rusting. Interesting. Uh, so, so you have to go in, and of course, you have to, um, you know, you have to get the growth contamination down, as well as you have to pre-clean and pre-treat so that you can start to reverse the effects of that flash rust so that your restoration procedures can, uh, can be much more effective. And we had, it was a very, it was a great result. It was a, a technically challenging project, but very, very rewarding project when it was said and done. Well, let's talk a little bit about pricing. How do you price the routine stuff that you do? You know, yeah, I'm sorry. You know, like kitchen utensils, you know, a set of china. I mean, how, how do you do that? Well, for the basic items, you know, residential, small commercial, basic items, we use Xactimate pricing. Um, in our area, Xactimate is, it's the... Um, pricing software. Um, for items that aren't in Xactimate, which what we deal with um, is probably about 40% of items that we touch on a daily basis probably isn't in Xactimate. Um, what we'll use on those is a time and material method. And as a general rule, we don't want to exceed 20% for restoration 
um, of the replacement value, except under approved and special circumstances. So general china, general items, general utensils, we'll just use the basic Xactimate pricing for those items. Do you have different levels? Uh, I mean, do you charge for different skill levels? For instance, you know, uh, you know, cleaning inexpensive, low-value things versus... Uh, you know, it's a lot more. It takes a lot more training to clean electronics than it might take to clean china. So, do you have different hourly rates that you charge? How do you handle that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Everything has a little bit of a different pricing structure. You know, even with basic electronics, some of that is handled through Xactimate. But um, what we found is the Xactimate database for electronics is is lacking on. Um, you know, the charge rate. Some of the charge rates, you know, some of it's like $156 to clean a, a DVD player or something when you can have it replaced for that. Right. Um, so you have to factor that in to, to your rate. We like to use the 20% rule, um, but when it comes to the T&M portion of it, like with your art, your furniture refinishing, um, and then, of course, your high-end technical, you know, outside of the residential electronics, yeah, those three have three separate billing rates on a time and materials method. Okay. While while we're discussing pricing, Will, I'm I'm curious, how do you assist people with determining the replacement value, if you do, of contents, and then assisting them with determining whether or not that value is going to be twenty percent? Do you have catalogs or there are online resources do you have to buy these resources uh, is it tough for you know every restoration contractor to have these or you know can you tell us a little bit about that yeah you know it, for a long time we had almost like a pricing research specialist where there was one person just dedicated on trying to pull this this material and we created a huge catalog of it um and so we were able to gather a lot of that information. There's a website that we commonly went to. You have to have a prescript, uh, subscription. <laughs> it's called usedprice.com, um, and we, we use that often. Now with our software, actually as soon as we scan in an item and, and detail what it is, we have a pre-built database that tells us the exact replacement cost for that item. We can even give that on site. Um, so that's been able to greatly improve our uh, our replacement cost pricing. Now, how often do these prices change? Will do you have to? Does your software? I, I assume it has to be updated pretty regularly. But I'm just curious. Uh, you know, I've been like I say, I'm a, an old roadshow kind of guy, or whatever. And sometimes they'll say, well, for instance, the price of uh, Chinese. Uh, artifacts are way up right now because more people in China have money to buy these and bring them back to China, etc. How often do you have to uh, revise that pricing? Well, something like that that's not mainstream. I mean, the basic items, you just, you, you're able to, um, to update it based off of the market conditions. And we're actually working on something where it's going to go out and search for the newest price each time we touch that item. Um, but with high-end items like that, if you need a true price, like if you're dealing with a um, 100-year-old Japanese silk screen, that's going to go to, if, if requested, it's going to go to an appraisal. Um, now, to get the pricing for restoration, we're going to base the time and material off that, of what it's actually going to take to restore it. But if we need to justify it, that's when we let the insurance company, this needs to be appraised by a professional that knows exactly what they're talking about with this piece. Cliff? 
Yeah, I got a couple things that always irritated me, and I wondered if you had some recommended solutions for uh, restoration firms that may be listening. You know, it's inevitable when you have someone's household in your facility that they want something. You know, they want their alarm clock. And what do you do when they need something, you know, when they need an item? Well, I learned that early on, you know, when, uh, you know, probably my first month of, of business when a customer had called and our inventory process wasn't as, as keyed in as it is now. And she said, hey, I want my, uh, my beach chairs before I go to the beach. And being new in business, of course, she wanted to jump and make them happy. It was on a Sunday. I ran in, opened up a vault, pulled everything all over the place, and took me about two hours to find the item. Um, now, with the inventory process that we have, again, it ties back to that inventory process um, because now those items are tracked. You know, the item has a tracking number. Um, then it has a location where it goes, and then it, when it goes into a vault, it has that vault number, and it has a location within that vault. So if they ask for an item, we're able to key it, and now we're able to go back and, and retrieve it within 10 minutes at the most, whatever they need. Um, so, again, it ties into that inventory process and really having that seamless chain of custody so that you can go back and see exactly where that thing is sitting at any given time. You know, I've had, my, I've had commercial moving done, and I've had residential moving done. And in all of the cases when I've used movers, I had to pay for the moving bill before the stuff came back into my possession, before it was taken off the truck and, you know, put into my house. How do you handle the money, Will? Yeah, normally we will. We have good relationships with the, the adjusters in our area, and we let them know up front in the beginning of the claim that we do expect this um, to be paid prior to pack back. You know, at first they wanted to inspect prior to it going back, and we're, we're totally good with that. Anymore, everybody knows our quality, everybody knows our process, and we're able to be paid prior to pack back, and we let that be known to the customer as well as to the adjusters up front. You know, if there's a minor holdback or something like that, just to make sure that everything goes okay and then it gets released, we have no problem with that. But the majority of the money, we do make sure that's in our possession prior to releasing those contents, just because that's, that's really the only leverage you have this day and age. Right. Um, if something, you know, if, uh, regretfully things do happen, and if a customer did want to receive the contents as well as keep the money, um, happened to me once in the beginning, and it never happened to me again. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, we all learned that we've all had the same lesson. I have a text question from a listener, half of which I know the answer to, and the second half I don't. Uh, I know that you've d spent a lot of time and money and effort developing uh, your own proprietary software. The question is, do you sell it or lease it to other companies? You know, right now we're in the middle of I can't talk too much about it. Um, we're in the middle of a little bit of a negotiation where I'm trying to, we're trying to decide which way we're going to go with that. Um, uh, right now we don't. Right now it's internal, um, but either way, depending on how the negotiation goes, it will be offered to to the public here shortly. Okay, good, good. 
about? Did you want to jump in? Yes, yes. Uh, Well, I was wondering, what would you say is the most unusual or unique item that you have cleaned or restored? Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to think of which one was the most unusual. I'm sure you've Uh, had quite a few, so... um, We've had Picassos come through. We've had... Probably, I'll say this. Probably, it was a power piece. This is another. It was a um, content from. It was an art content. Um, we had done a job for a nationally known war correspondent, um, pundit that that goes on CNN and a couple other things. And she had had in her travels had come back with a power piece from the Congo. Um, that supposedly there was only really two in known existence. And regretfully, the restoration company that was on site prior to us being there had used this piece um, as a doorstop. And in doing their work, it had actually uh, been knocked over and a piece was broken off of it. So we called in professionals that understood, you know, the age, the item, the type of wood, et cetera, et cetera, and how to, how to restore and repair it. And we were able to do that with, you know, several, um, several people that were very knowledgeable about these pieces from around the country, you know, and able to restore that and get that back to the customer. And it, uh, it was an incredible piece, neat thing to look at, little scary, not knowing what it was used in, but, um, it was a neat piece. That was probably one of the most interesting things, but that, that's one that comes to mind. Every day I walk back at some of our departments and some of the items that they're restoring, I'm just blown away. And I just, I, I'm literally, I'm amazed at the quality of our work. I, I'm, I mean, I'm personally amazed, but then I'm also amazed at the level of professionalism that our technicians have. I, I have wow moments every day when I see some of these things. Hey, well, what's the most valuable sports-related item you've ever had to work on? Um, wow, that's another one. We have a lot of, uh, we have a lot of sports memorabilia that's, that's come through here recently due to the floods in our area. Okay. Um, you know, I've had, we've had Shaquille O'Neal signed shoes come through. We've had Babe Ruth baseballs, Mickey Mantle. Um, you know, just about any any interesting piece of sports memorabilia you can think of has has come through our come through our shop. And and again, you know, I have wow moments. But it's also I'm getting a little jaded because you know they'll come up and say, hey, you know, you want to come check this out? And I ask what it is, and they say, hey, it's a you know Babe Ruth or a Mickey Mantle or whatever. Uh, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey. Before we go uh, into the, the roundup, too, I wanted to first, what's a power piece? You mentioned a power piece, I think you called the, I think I know what you're talking about, but maybe you could describe it a little more for me. It's a wooden. Wooden carved, uh, you know, we, I call it, I nicknamed it the tiki. Uh, uh, but okay. It's a small, about a one to feet, two feet tall wooden carved piece. Um, you know, with different uh, metals and, and glass in it, you know, and. And some technician decided to use it as a doorstop, huh? <laughs> exactly. Wow. I don't think they realized what they were picking up. Uh, obviously <laughs> not, I guess. But that's that's one of the things that makes this type of show so interesting, Will, is the, the un- unbelievable diversity of 
things that you deal with on a daily basis and, and why it's important to use someone with your type of knowledge to, to assist you with that. Uh, Cliff, did you want to go to the next one? Yeah. or Go ahead. No, uh, Val. Val. Uh, yeah, well, could you tell me how large is your facility down there? Well, our main processing center is 15,000 square feet, um, and that's broken up into different labs and different sections where we produce the, uh, the different kinds of work. Um, we also have two other storage warehouses, which are the same size and larger, uh, for just vault storage, where it's lock-secured um, camera vault storage for the finished goods prior to packback. All right, let's let's go to our roundup here. We're we're going to go around one time. We're going to bring Doctor Wow yeah, in real hang quick. Uh, Will, can you hang in there for another five minutes with us? Absolutely. Great, thank you. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up. Move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw. Let's round it up here. Let's start with our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. All right, Dieter. Hey, Dieter, I know that aluminum fire had to get your attention. Tell me, talk to me a minute. For, uh, what's, what are the issues with an aluminum fire? You better watch out. <laughs> I mean, aluminum powder is like a stick of dynamite. It's like it's like coal dust in a coal mine. I it is awful. <laughs> uh, okay, okay. I, I thought you I might have watch that. that one very carefully. I mean, you have an explosive mixture there with oxygen, and and of course it depends on the particle size also, but. Uh, I would stay far away from it. <laughs> well, Will jumped in there and took care of it. Did you have to have uh, special equipment for that, Will? I know sometimes you have to use, for instance, uh, equipment that is shielded so there's no arcing or no no electric, no possibility of electric starting a, a fire or, or an explosion of some type. Um, was that the case on this one or wasn't yeah, quite well, the that? the thing was it, we had it all removed before we got in there and started cleaning. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Smart what has happened? What's that? Smart move. Yeah. <laughs> what has happened is it got trapped in the dust collection center. Oh my God, that's and even a, worse. Yeah. Yep. And a spark from a grinder <laughs> actually ignited that. Uh, uh, and the local the fire department didn't know exactly how to put it out, so they let it burn. Wow. Um, and of course, before we got in there, we had uh, we had. IAQ testing, as well as um, the local OSHA and MOSH had come through and given guidance on what needed to be done, and we asked all the right questions to make sure that we were properly uh, understanding what we were dealing with and protected. So okay. we actually um, 
consulted with three separate parties to make sure we we're following the proper protocol. And for those not familiar, Moshe is the Maryland Occupational Safety and Health. Um, all right, let's let's. Dieter, did you have any other quick comments for? for oh, this sure. One? I know you've always got some interesting comments. Oh, sure, absolutely. For door stops, I personally use my gold bars. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're twenty five pounds each, and they're very easy to clean. Non, you can clean it with an acid. You can clean it with Ajax. Doesn't matter. <laughs> I somehow believe you, Dieter. <laughs> that's that's funny because there was a uh, job oh, you do that too, huh? We were on the job, and the restoration company used a bag of silver silver bars. Wow! <laughs> oh, see, that's that's close. <laughs> I prefer gold; it's better. Uh, a couple of a couple of uh, uh, nice comments you made, Will. It's yeah, you know, we have this ultrasonic, and we have this and that, and pri- uh, priority uh, chemicals. And sometimes you got to go back to the old techniques. Isn't that nice? Absolutely. I think it's absolutely wonderful. Um, so that that I like that. And I said, hey, there are a couple of things you got to know what you are doing if you want to do it right. right. Yeah, I I can get paint of a Picasso painting in I mean you know <laughs> in no time. That is probably not the right way to do it. Exactly. The, the other thing is, and there is a common denominator. I know very little or virtually nothing about cleaning and all of that. But there are a couple of other um, uh, common denominators. And you mentioned that when I had, have a contract or when I do a survey, you know, I tell them what I'm doing and give them a little bit more. Everybody, everybody wants to get something for free. You mentioned that also. You know, you go in there and do that. The next comment I have over here, and this is just absolutely incredible, uh, we are so lucky to have digital cameras. It is just unbelievable what you can do with them. Yeah. I, I just put a new chip in, uh, 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 an empty uh, uh, chip into my camera, and I push the button I get from one gigabyte with, with uh, the high resolution, I get something like four, almost 500 pictures. And I remember when I was on a trip, uh, I took pictures and I didn't give a damn. <laughs> I was pushing that button. I said, I'm very good at home with the delete button. So I had them. That's I, a good the point aluminum too, dude. and explosive, I wrote that one down. Uh, the other thing is also, I like the inventory process. And again, that is made easy uh, today. Can you imagine doing that all by hand? Right. Uh, it's it's it, the, the, the time is just unbelievable to do that. Today you can do uh, 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 take a picture of a camera. You can put a sticker on it, uh, and uh, even download it to your computer, which is so much better. That's a good use of a computer. <clears throat> I heard one acronym. And Will got by without a ticket. <laughs> uh, what the heck is AFD? Oh, uh, air filtration device. Sorry. Air oh, oh, oh okay. okay. I should know that. <clears throat> I call them negative air machines. I'm, <laughs> I'm one of the old-fashioned guys. There we go. Well, you know, that's common, Dieter. In the, in the disaster restoration world, they call them scrubbers. In the asbestos oh. and, and the industrial hygiene world, they're always known as negative air machines. And now they've got I this... used them the first time. We used them to get negative pressure in an asbestos abatement uh, area. Yeah. And we called them negative air machines. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of 
stuck with me. Okay. I should have known AFD. My fault, Well, That's all right. <laughs> so, we need I'm to getting old and forgetful, <laughs> so I have an excuse. It's good to Here's clarify. <laughs> but right. I think there are a couple. You made a couple of, of uh, uh, good points which are applicable not only to your business, but overall business, regardless of what you are doing. Well said, Dieter. Well, Dieter, thanks for joining us. As always, we appreciate it. And Cliff, I'm gonna I'm going to defer to you since Will was your you know your idea here, and I know you've worked a lot with him. And then we're gonna let Val finish up. Will, are you in a big hurry to run out of here? No, I'm good. Okay, Cliff. Well, I, I wanted to go back on, on the on the digital camera just just for for a bit. You know, years ago on restoration projects, we would take a lot of photographs, and we were using rolls of film. And the only time we would develop the role was if there were photos that we wanted or if there was a problem. Because the film might have been $4 a roll. The, the uh, processing might have been $20 you yeah. know, to get it done. Yeah. So, you know, literally somewhere I have thousands and thousands of rolls of film that <laughs> I, I never In some storage shed yeah, somewhere. I, I never developed, yeah. But the question I have for you, Will, is what, what do you use to move the inventory to your facility and uh, take it back? Do you use cardboard boxes? Do you use bins? Uh, can you recycle or reuse any of the packing materials? You know, we've we've tried every. We've done bins. We've we started with cardboard. We did bins. We're back to cardboard. Okay. Um, and what we're doing with that is we have a really good relationship with a local recycler. So we actually have a tractor trailer backed up to our facility. That when we're using when we have a used product, we'll actually break it down and send it out to a recycling facility. Um, a, I don't want all that going in the waste stream. And B, with boxes, we're able to, you know, with bins, you can't, you can't um, manipulate them. Mm-hmm. With boxes, if we need to make custom packaging for something or protect something, you know, it's so easy to cut a box, you know, make a custom box for something. It's just they're so flexible that we couldn't really get away from them. Now, when you look at document restoration, packing them out in a, in a, in a specialized box, that's a little bit something different. But for general content handling, you know, nothing beats good old cardboard that you can cut and tape and manipulate and add some bubble wrap and move it around to make a custom packing. And, you know, several times you mentioned vaults as well, Will. If you could describe for listeners that aren't familiar with that term what a vault is. Yeah, just large. Ours are uh, there. We actually have X, um, I guess they're called smart boxes. And they're just the large five by seven by seven, um, very reinforced um, plywood boxes. And ours have locking latches on them. So each, each customer's contents can be locked and secured within a locked and secured and um, locked and secured in camera facilities. So it's just another another layer of keeping things nice, neat, together, tidy, and safe. Well, what's the difference between the vault that you're using and the standard wood vaults that, you know, are in six pieces that can be, you know, broken down pretty much flat and then erected? Do yours work the same way? I mean, can you break them down flat? Ours are ours are more permanent. Okay. Um, they're better reinforced. And now we do have some of the older style vaults. Don't get me wrong, 
Um, but a lot of our, the majority of the vaults that we have in our possession now are the larger reinvo- reinforced hinged door type vaults rather than the older traditional um, vaults that, uh, that require breakdown and clumps. Okay. And it's just, it creates a more secure, steady, um, you know, easier to operate environment. Instead of clumping off those doors, literally you take the padlock off and it has a hinged door that swings open. You can go in and out as needed. Let's let Val finish with uh, the last roundup question. Okay, yeah. Well, I was just wondering, is there anything that you would like to add? Um, I mean, really, just, uh, you know, uh, just a word of advice um, for contractors that do full service. But that, um, you know, using a mixed-use workforce can sometimes be disastrous for dealing with content. Um, there's that great demo and mitigation technicians don't always translate into good contents technicians um, because they're so focused on tearing something apart that it's hard to get them to change gears quickly to understand that contents need a special light hand instead of a heavy hand during mitigation. Um, so what I tell them is you either need dedicated employees that handle contents um, with that added overhead um, but don't need to switch gears or call in a specialist to work with you and make life easier by freeing up those resources to take more jobs and do what you do best. And, Will, okay. before we go, how would people contact you or your company? Yep, they can go to our website. Our website is www.amrestore.com. That's A-M-R-E-S-T-O-R-E.com. Um, I highly recommend reading some of the newsletters in the news section or they can always call our toll-free number. It's 1-800-498-8800. Either way is good. You know, we love to help. We love to further the industry and uh, answer any questions people might have. Well, Will, we loved having you as a guest here this week on IAQ Radio. And I tell you, I've already got a few text messages in here that uh, people really enjoyed the show. I want to thank you for joining us here this week and for your hospitality in the past when I visited your facility. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Yep, continued well, you, good gentlemen. luck in the future, yep, man. continued good sex. Yep, thank you, guys. And, and, you know, I just want to thank you both for all that you've done and continue to do for this industry. You guys are great. Thank you. Thank you, Will. We appreciate that. All right. Before we go, I also want to make sure I thank the Z-Man, my co-host. Fun show. Another fun week, huh? And uh, Valerie Bender for assisting us. Val, yes, yes. Good to have you. Austin, Stone Cold Novak at the controls. Of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wah. But most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners, we've got an interesting show next week. We've got uh, Joy Finch coming in from Greenville Technical College. We're going to discuss some education issues, education and indoor air quality. And Joy's been doing this for 20 years now at the Technical College, doing a lot of environmental and safety training. And we look forward to her joining us next week on the next edition of IAQ Radio. has been another IAQ Radio production.
Call recording has been completed.